All right, well, if you'll please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9, which you can find on page 918 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 31. So, Acts 9, verse 23 through 31. Well, salt, at least the kind that you'll find sitting on the table later today as you eat your lunch, is made up of two chemical components, sodium and chlorine. And they say that opposites attract, and it is very true when it comes to sodium and chlorine. They are each chemically very different from each other. In fact, no one knew they were going back to high school chemistry this morning, right? If you were to look at a periodic table, you would actually see that sodium and chlorine are located on opposite sides from each other. They're so different. Sodium is a reactive alkali metal. You might think of it as a generous element. It's always looking to give away a spare electron. As such, it binds readily to many other elements that make up other compounds, which makes it quite entertaining if you put some in a little bit of water. It'll bubble and kind of explode. Now, chlorine, on the other hand, is a halogen gas, which is also highly reactive, but for the opposite reason that sodium is. You can think of it as a hungry element. It's always looking to seize that electron that it lacks. So whereas sodium is solid at room temperature, chlorine will actually appear as a green gas, which will kill you if you breathe it. Chemically, these two elements are completely opposite of each other. Chlorine, in particular, has the power to harm you. But when they come together we find that they form a compound that is absolutely vital to our health. I've always enjoyed that little irony. When sodium and chlorine are brought together, you have two highly volatile elements that can do you great harm turn into a stable compound that you actually sprinkle on your popcorn. There's a real, tangible, even visible change that takes these two things which will by themselves cause death and harm and makes them into something that's absolutely vital to your life. Now, it's not a perfect illustration. And I told Dan that he could, he could correct me after this. All right, perfect. All right, that's good. It's not a perfect illustration, but when I think about the life of Saul and I think of what became of him after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, I see a similar change in the sense that he transformed into being a man who was volatile, full of hatred, and lost in darkness in his unbelief, into becoming a man who was full of passion and love for Christ and for others, a man who was willing to take life turned into a man who was willing to give his life. He still saw, but he's different now. He, he changed, not just in his character, but in his very nature. So he was transformed from a person who was bent on the destruction of the name of Christ to a person who proclaimed the name of Christ and the good news of salvation through faith in him, even when it cost him his life. He went from being a ravager of the church to a builder in the church. Well, in Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples, You are the salt of of the earth. Salt gives flavor. It preserves. It gives life. It even purifies. The law of Moses actually dictated that salt be offered along with the sacrifices that were put on the altar. When Jesus called his disciples the salt of the world, he was speaking to them about the way that all these things have become a reality in the life of a believer. 
When a person becomes united to Christ by faith, their life takes on his flavor. It's transformed. There, there's an aroma of Christ to the Christian which is distinct and noticeable. As we look at the life of Saul after he had come to faith, we see a man who was full of the flavor of Christ. He was the real deal. And his testimony is really important for us, since as we study our passage this morning, we see the depth of the transforming work of God in a person's life. And we see the evidence for the trustworthiness of the gospel message. And finally, we see God's commitment to building up his church to the glory of Christ, overcoming every obstacle. So with that, if you would, please stand with me as I read our passage this morning. That's from Acts chapter 9. Starting, I'm actually going to take a running start into our passage. I'm going to start in verse 22, but we will be looking at verses 23 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when, they had come to Jeru- and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, if you remember back to our passage last week, you remember that Jesus told Ananias he would show Saul how much he would suffer for the sake of his name. And we see from our passage this morning that Jesus wasn't joking when he said that. In the course of six verses, we see Paul is run out of two different towns, which is why I've entitled this message, Man on the Run. But while Luke tells us about Saul in his opening years of his ministry, it's really the result of what God was doing in the midst of all these troubles that I actually want to focus on this morning. We see specifically summed up in verse 31, that the church was growing, that it had peace and comfort in God, even as all of these things were taking place. So that brings us to our main idea this this morning, the main idea of the sermon, and what I think is the main idea of our, our passage, which is this, that through every peril, God will build his church. Through every peril, God will build his church. And so as we look at that uh, as it's expressed in our passage, I want to point you really to give you three handholds or three points this morning. First, we're going to be looking at a true message. We're going to be looking at the truth of the message of the gospel. Second, we're going to be looking at a real change, how Saul's life was completely different. 
And finally, we'll be looking at growth in God, how God was committed to growing his people. Well, first, let's start with this true message. The kingdom of God, you can think of it as a tapestry. Like individual threads of all of different shapes and colors, we all have our individual backgrounds and stories. Some of us came to faith early in life. Others of us did not believe the gospel until we were much older. Some of us were rescued out of a lifestyle of open sin and rebellion, while others of us may have embraced a certain kind of morality only to realize when we were confronted with the holiness of Christ that our righteous works weren't actually enough. Whatever your story, whatever your background, if you are a believer, you have a few critical things in common with every other believer in this room. Things that unite us together, no matter what our background is. If you are a Christian, then you have been saved by grace, through faith in Christ alone. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you believe the gospel and you were born again. According to the mystery and the wisdom of God, the story of your life has been and is being woven into a greater story, into a a picture that records and exalts the glory of God for all eternity. Besides that, we all also have this in common, that this gospel that we heard and which we believed was shared with us by someone else. We received it on the witness or the testimony of someone else. Someone who God used to bring this good news to us. This is something that goes all the way back to the beginning of the book of Acts, where Jesus stood before his disciples and commissioned and authorized them to be his witnesses in all the world. It's a commission and a purpose that remains the prime directive of the church today. To share this good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and his imminent return. There's a drive then within every person who is trusted in Christ, which is brought on them by the Holy Spirit, to share this good news with others. Like beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. And this is a drive we see took hold of Saul's life as he came to faith. In verse 22... Luke says that Saul had increased all the more in strength and that he had confounded, he was confounding the Jews who were living in Damascus, proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. Now, the key action here is that Saul was proving this to them, meaning that he was demonstrating to them objectively that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Christ. Now, this is an important detail to notice because it means that Saul was doing more than just telling people about what he had personally experienced in his encounter with Jesus. Proof requires evidence. And I take it to mean that, when, uh, that the proof that Saul was offering to people was proof specifically from the Scriptures, showing them from God's Word that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of God's promise. Saul was a student of the Bible well before he was actually saved. Uh, if you know anything about his background, as we've been making our way through Acts, you'll know he was, he was not only a member of the Pharisees who were known and respected for their knowledge of the Scriptures, but by his own account, he was actually advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. That's why he initially opposed the gospel as harshly as he did. But when Saul was confronted with the reality of Jesus, it didn't necessarily change what he had learned in the scriptures, but it did change how he read them. He was missing a piece. 
Whereas he had once seen the message of the apostles, the message of the gospel, as a threat, now he saw that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of what he had dedicated his life to. Progressively he grew in strength and understanding, offering those who continued to oppose the message of the gospel proofs that they, they couldn't ignore, couldn't dismiss. So eventually we see that Saul's insistence on this message became too much for the Jewish leadership. And in verse 23, Luke says that after many days, the Jews hatched a plot to kill him. They were done listening to him. They were done arguing with him. They just wanted him to go in a hole and die. Now from what we read in Galatians 1, verses 17 through 18, it actually seems that Saul had been proclaiming the good news of the gospel and proving to people... Uh, that Jesus was the Christ for a period of about three years, not only in Damascus, but also in other places in the region. In fact, Saul's testimony had grown to such a level that according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32, the governor of the city himself had actually put the city on alert in order to seize him. So this is a joint effort to get Saul. So Damascus, we see, was no longer a safe place for him. And the fact that the Jews had gone so far as to plot and to scheme, even, even the governor uh, being willing to try to seize him, tells him, us, I think, a few important things related to the life of Saul and also the message that he proclaimed. First, let's look at the effect the gospel was having on Saul and what that proves about the power of the gospel. As we read verse 23, we can clearly see that Saul really was committed to Jesus. This was not a show. By trusting in Christ, Saul had lost favor with everyone who had once commended him, maybe even revered him as a defender of the teachings of the law and the elders. In becoming a Christian, Saul had transitioned from being a favored son of the Jewish leadership to a man that had to go on the run, and yet he was clearly reasoning with people and proving to them that Jesus was the Christ with such vigor and persistence. Finally, the Jewish leadership of the city, even the governor itself, was on a plot of how they could just get rid of him. As I look at Saul's life and this report about the first three years of his ministry, I see proof and evidence of the reality and the extent of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in him. You can't look at the life of Saul and come away doubting whether or not he had genuine faith. He did, and it was evidenced by the way he was living. People are not typically willing to give their lives for something unless they are utterly and completely convinced that it is true. And I think that's what makes Saul's life and his testimony so compelling. We know without a doubt that Saul was sold to the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life as a ransom for many, who was raised by the power of the Father from the dead on the third day, and stands so that his death might be effective for our life. In his own words, Paul, Saul, where he, whereas he once opposed the notion of a crucified Messiah, is now declaring... I am not ashamed of the, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is re revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as I present Saul to you, I'm not saying that people can't be deceived in order that they give their lives for something that isn't true. That, that happens. But as we look at the circumstances specifically of Saul's conversion, 
and the undeniable change that happened in his life as a result of the experience he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus, I think it makes a compelling case for the authenticity of what he believed and what he declared to others. One minute, he is, he's a bitter enemy of Jesus, and the next, he's declaring and proving with unmatched zeal that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. How, do you, how else would you explain that? Well, the best way to explain it is to listen to what Saul himself said, that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the only way to look at Saul's life and that transformation and really understand this level of difference. And the second thing we'd see is that we see is, is simply as we look at Saul's arguments in which he proved that Jesus was a Christ, we see that they were sound. So we see an authentic conversion. We also see arguments that weren't easily overturned. Saul was confronting the Jewish leaders in Damascus, growing all the more in strength. Well, what does it mean for him to grow in strength? Well, the clearest explanation is that he was growing in his faith, that he was growing in his commitment, and he was growing in the way that he understood how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. The reason I think that this this is the best explanation simply is because the way Luke has framed Saul's growth within the context of the proofs he was presenting to, to the Jews in Damascus, showing them that Jesus is the Christ. If Saul's arguments were unsound, if they, if they had flaws in them, the Jewish leaders and the authorities in Damascus would have had an answer for what he was saying to them. But as it was, like the Hellenists who opposed Stephen in Jerusalem, they weren't able to give an answer. They weren't able to overturn what he was saying. So instead, they actually resorted to breaking the law. I'm sure they would say they were doing it in defense of the law, but all the same, they were breaking it by plotting to kill Saul. And what a tragedy as these men hardened their hearts against the good news. But even still, as we look at this, I think the fact that they gave up debating Saul and instead tried to murder him shows us something about the authenticity of the message he was proclaiming and the persuasiveness of what he was saying. So there are two things I want you to take away from this. First, I want you to see that the gospel of Jesus is true. The gospel of Jesus is true. And because it is true, it will withstand every criticism and every assault. For over 2,000 years, Satan has tried his best to stop this message. And he has failed with every attempt. He will fail with every future attempt. This is a message that you can stake your eternity on. And you can do that because it is true. It has a track record of victory from the first days of the apostles even until this morning. As Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The second thing to take away from this is to know, is is, is simply that we know the gospel is true because it comes to us not only in a message, not only in a word, but also in power. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul observes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So it's one thing to be able to recite what the gospel is. 
It's another thing to experience the gospel as it is at work in your life with a power that can only be credited to God himself. The power of the gospel is felt in the truth of the gospel. God, through his word and by the Holy Spirit, raises dead hearts and makes them alive in Christ. As a result, we see lives like Saul changed and transformed to be like him. As I stand here in front of you, I, I'm, I'm encouraged to look out on the, on the faces of people who have experienced the power of the gospel firsthand, who are living, breathing testimonies of the effectiveness of the work of Christ. I, I love getting to meet with you guys and to spend time with you and learn about how God has changed your life, how he is changing your life. That's, that's a unique privilege I think a pastor gets to see in a unique way. And I want to encourage you because I see how God has impacted your lives. And I want you to encourage you to, through that to press on into the truth of this message. But maybe you're here this morning and you've got your doubts about the gospel. And you've got doubts about the authenticity of what I've been saying. Oh, Christianity is just another religion amongst religions. Right? Well, not so much. If that's you, so let me challenge you this morning. Put this message to the test. Don't be like the Jewish leaders who had all of these proofs, these sound proofs that they couldn't overturn, presented to them, but chose instead to reject it out of hand. Grapple with this message. And I think that if you do that honestly, that you will find what I have found, that the message of the gospel, which stands on the proof of, of Christ's death and resurrection and the testimony of God and His Word and through His people is a mountain that stands immovable because it is true. So we've seen a true message. But because the gospel is true, we see also that it creates true change in those who believe it. So in our second point, we will look at a real change. Luke says that when Saul became aware that his life was in danger, he did not remain in Damascus. Instead, some of the men who had believed the gospel because of his testimony and teaching took him, and they found a way to let him down through a bat in a basket through an opening in a wall. And I wish I could have seen this, because um, it, it was not uncommon, uh, really, for certain homes to be built within the walls of a city. So it seems that it's likely Saul was helped out of the city by being let out of an opening or a window in someone's house that was built into the wall. Somehow these guys managed to find a way out. And so you almost have this secret agent kind of Mission Impossible moment happening where Saul's in a, I don't know where you find a basket enormous enough to hold a man like Saul. But they did, and they got him out this window, and he headed back to Jerusalem. Now, we're to understand from Paul's own words that he had been away from Jerusalem for about three years. But clearly, the church in Jerusalem was still aware of the damage that he had caused. The smoke was still coming up from the city, if you will. So unsurprisingly, when Saul showed up and tried to join with the the other disciples, Luke says they were all afraid of him because they did not believe that he had become a disciple. Honestly, I mean, how could you blame them? Saul had wreaked havoc on the church. He had chased down believers. He had kicked in their doors. He had seen them thrown in prison. He had made every attempt to trap them and try to make them blaspheme. And when the vote had come, he had voted against them so they would be executed as violators of the law. Even Ananias 
who had been commanded directly by Jesus to go and to meet with Saul in Damascus, had been hesitant to even enter the same room as Saul. And so it's obvious why the church in Jerusalem was so afraid to let Saul in their midst. But we see in verse 27 that Luke tells us of our beloved brother Barnabas, that beloved son of encouragement who took the risk. Meeting with Saul, Barnabas heard his story. And then he vouched for him before the apostles and declared to them on the road how he had seen the Lord, how he had spoken to him, and how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, Saul was never one to be short on words, so I find it striking uh, for the way that Luke seems to indicate that Barnabas was the one who did most of the talking for Saul in front of the apostles. It makes sense, though, because Barnabas was a trusted believer, whereas Saul was for a former enemy. So what, what that means, though, is that it means that Barnabas not only took the risk to meet with Saul, but he listened to him well enough to get to know his story, that he was convinced by it, and he was able to recount it to the apostles and to show them that this was genuine. And because of Barnabas, we see that the apostles and the rest of the believers in Jerusalem were finally willing to accept Saul into their fellowship. Now, so far this morning, I've said a lot about the authenticity of the gospel and the power of the gospel. It is a, a power which is real, which shows itself, in the way that Jesus triumphs over the darkness of our sin to bring traitorous rebels in and to transform them into sons and daughters to be co-heirs with Christ. Doctrinally, I think we're all willing and ready to affirm that. But situations like what we read about here between Saul and the believers in Jerusalem are really where I think that conviction gets put to the test. I mean, can you imagine the conversations that were being happened that were happening between the disciples conversations we might have if an enemy were trying to come in and be part of this church him him become a christian you've got to be kidding me i know what he used to do her after what she said to me there's no way no way the question Saul's reception among the believers in Jerusalem makes us ask ourselves is do we really believe that the gospel changes people? Do we really believe it? We, we're happy to believe it when, it when it applies to ourselves. But do we believe it when we're talking about people who we would never say would believe this message? We live in a messy world. People lie. They tell us things that they think we want to hear. God is pretty clear in his word about the condition of the human heart. And I'm sure that the apostles and the other believers in Jerusalem had some long, passionate discussions with each other about whether or not they should allow Saul to come in their midst. What if these reports they had heard from Damascus were just a setup? What if this was a long game from Saul trying to infiltrate the church in Jerusalem to silence the apostles and the church there once and for all? What better way, really, for Saul to commend himself to get back into the good graces of the Jewish council than to deliver Peter and the other apostles to them? It's easy from where we're sitting, I think, to say that they should have accepted Saul in. We know that it was genuine. We have all of Paul's letters. We have the record of his life. But the church in Jerusalem didn't have that. We really can't fault them, I think, for their fears or for their reservations about this. The risk 
was real. And yet the risk was right. So I am thankful for Barnabas, who risked his life and limb and his reputation, not only meeting with Saul, but also by using his own standing with the apostles to commend this new brother in the faith to them. Now again, Paul clarifies in the book of Galatians that he actually only met with Peter and James, and that he was only in town for about two weeks before he was run out again. But a bridge between Saul and the other apostles was created this day, all because of the actions which Barnabas, this son of encouragement, took. In his letter to Timothy, Paul describes himself as an apostle who was untimely born. His road to faith was different than the rest of the apostles, but it was just as authentic. I think that it, it became obvious to Barnabas, Peter, and the rest of the church as Saul told, uh, told of how he had been confronted by the holiness of Jesus, how he had been convinced of this gospel, and how he then turned around and proclaimed this. Not only he had proclaimed this for three years in Damascus and the surrounding regions, but also how he was doing this in front of them in Jerusalem. It would have become evident to them as he did this openly that he had been transformed. And in fact, we see how far the tables have turned. Luke tells us that Saul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now, that word should ring in your mind because you remember who Stephen had disputed with? It was the Hellenists. He'd been put to death on their testimony. Here is Saul arguing with the same men whose coats he had watched not that long ago as they put Stephen to death for the same message. Stephen's death was clearly on Saul's mind since as he recounts in Acts 22 that as he was praying in the temple, he fell into a trance and Jesus told him to make haste and to leave the city because the people he was speaking to were not going to accept his testimony. And that he, he says actually he responded to this command. He says, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I think it must have been something for Saul to be back in Jerusalem to see the very place where Stephen had been killed. Since meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul was not the same man who had stood with approval over the body of Stephen, now his brother in the faith and fellow martyr. I imagine that it would have been an overwhelming experience for him because so much had changed. Most of all, he had changed. Stephen's prayer for him in the last moments of his life had been answered. He had been forgiven, and he stood there now in the city where Jesus had given his own life as a ransom for Saul's and he proclaimed him as the risen king. Now Saul's time in Jerusalem was short. Not long after he arrived and met with these apostles and started preaching boldly in the name of Jesus, his life was in danger again. And we know from Acts 22 that Jesus himself told Saul to flee the city, but it seems that the brothers in Jerusalem were likewise working diligently to get Saul out. Uh, if Saul had created havoc for them as an enemy, he was back in town, and now the city was in an uproar again. And so we see that they, they took him out and they took him to Caesarea and they sent him back home to Tarsus where we know that he continued to preach the gospel. Now the point we're meant to take from all, away from all of this, this, specifically from this passage, 
is the simple reality that the gospel really does change people. It changed Saul in a way that even the apostles had a hard time believing. And so far we've been considering how this change shows that the gospel is true. But here I think God's word challenges believers. The church should not be naive so as to throw open its doors to wolves who would come in and destroy it. People who know the right words, but who are scheming about how they can devour the flock. But neither should we underestimate the power of the gospel to save even the hardest of sinners. So let each one of us be, as Jesus says, wise as serpents and innocent as doves, and let us trust in the truth of the gospel, which transforms sinners and makes them into sons of God. Now, what came of all this? This whole passage seems to be just Saul running from one place to another. But in verse 31, Luke wraps this thing up with a summary. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now this section began with the church on the run being scattered after the death of Stephen. And now we see that as the church has been spread out in Judea, Samaria, Damascus, even Ethiopia, that the church is growing and it is multiplied by the grace of God. God prevailed in and through these difficult times for the church, expanding the kingdom of Christ in, in an awesome display of sovereign power. I don't think that Luke would have, would have us to think that the church no longer encountered any sort of opposition or oppression. Those things are part of living in a fallen world. But Luke does say that the church had peace. Not only that, he says that it was being built up. The peace of God is a peace which passes all understanding in all circumstances. It is there whatever the circumstance, whether we are going through stormy times or whether we are going through times that when this, it's all sunshine and roses. This is a peace that comes as a result of God's power which remains with us even when we find ourselves in a, in a fight for our very lives. The church had peace. And it had this peace because of the way that God was at work in them to prevail for his people to the glory of Christ. Now besides the church's peace, we find the church was also growing in number, in breadth, and also in depth. We see that they were walking together in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I think Luke has really captured the, the, the vital nature of the relationship that God has with the church and which the church has with him, even while we're here on earth. Notice this intricate blend of verbal voices that Luke has here. Some of these verbs in this last verse are stative. They, the, the, it tells us that the church had peace and it multiplied. It's just telling us of a simple reality. Some of these are passive. It was growing and it was being built up. It was being acted on. And then some of these verbs are active. It says that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. There's, they they're taking activity, there's activity involved here. When we put this together, we see that the, that the church was being, it was growing and it was being built up by God who was working in them by His Spirit. We likewise see that the church was actively walking in the fear of the Lord, that is, in reverent obedience to Him, and that they were living also in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for us and empowers us for this work. 
Consequently, because of the way that God was working in the church and the way that they likewise were pursuing him, we see that the church had peace. It had peace because it was where God wanted it to be. This is the lifestyle of the church of Christ. The goal of the church, especially the local church, is to serve as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has tasked us to be his witnesses, and he has promised to expand his kingdom through our testimony. Those prayers that we, that we pray on a Sunday morning asking God to expand his kingdom and to open people's hearts to the truth, those prayers are heard. Jesus has called us and commissioned us to be discipled, and he's also called us to be disciple-makers. Church growth, then, has to be measured in two directions, the sort of directions that Luke shows us here, in depth and in breadth. Jesus, our Lord, has given us two priorities, and unfortunately, it is easy for us to actually pit these two priorities against each other. When I was part of another denomination, I remember going to these conventions where the leadership would stand up and give a report to everyone who was there about the numbers of baptisms and conversions that had taken place. And it was astounding. And in some ways it was encouraging, but it always struck me as sort of an odd thing to do. Because it was just a number. And a lot of times those numbers could be skewed. And don't get me wrong, nothing makes my heart more joyful than hearing about how God has saved a person. But reports like that always seem lopsided and shallow, as if it was saying, well, look at this large church over here. Clearly it is being faithful to the gospel in the way that this church over here that only had two baptisms this year, well, they weren't. That's not true church growth. What it does is it turns the church into a numbers game. And it seemed to me really to encourage breadth without depth. And the lesson from that is to understand that we must never dilute the truth in order to chase numbers. Diluting truth to chase numbers builds a church that looks flashy and is big but which has no depth. Likewise, we may find ourselves chasing depth in doctrine in the name of discipleship and obedience, but fail to carry this message of the gospel to the world around us. It's easy to get trapped in an ivory tower to enjoy the depth and the riches of God, but not to share it. Churches which are founded on sound doctrine, but which fail to put truth in action, are equally out of line with the heart of God and the commission that King Jesus has given us. If you've ever seen a tightrope walker, you'll see that they'll never attempt to walk that rope without a stick. They'll never attempt to walk that rope with a stick that's weighted on one side. Why? Because they'll fall. You will always find them walking with a stick that is balanced with weight to either side. Well, how do we do that as a church? Well, we see that to be grounded in truth, pressing deeper and deeper into the truth so that we may grow by the grace of God and the Spirit who is at work in us, who is helping us to put that truth into practice. We do that by seeking the priorities that Jesus has given his church. And as we do that, we may expect what Luke records in verse 31, that God will continue to work in and through us for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have looked at your word and we have seen how you worked in the life of your servant Saul. Father, as we look at his life, it's three times you inspire Luke to record his testimony, and there's a reason for that. 
Because the, the power that you have in the grace of the gospel is just made manifest in a, a marvelous way there. Father, this morning there may be people on our minds who, who are enemies to us, who we think there is no way the gospel could ever touch them. And yet you saved us. And we know by your word that the only difference between us and them is your grace. So Father, this morning as we, as we, as we have considered the power and the truth of the gospel, we pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of those people, that you would save them, that you would also work in our hearts so that we would be ready and willing to receive them as you do so. Father, most of all, I pray that you would work in your church today the way that you did in the days of the apostles. That you would grow us together in grace and in truth. That we would grow together as one body. That we would grow in depth the way a tree grows into the ground and is held fast and firm. And that we would also bear the fruit of the gospel as we, as we, share, the, as we share this good news with others. Father, we pray that we would be faithful as your people. And we thank you for this good news of Jesus, which strengthens us and which assures us of your power and work. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.